Well, prior to the Industrial Revolution, every culture on the planet celebrated harvest. The time of harvest, the time of bringing in the crops, the fruit of all the labor that had gone on in various cycles of of the year, right? The, the, The act of bringing in that harvest was a time of joy and celebration, and rightly so. Harvest time was literally when that hard work paid off. You had this, this cyclical, you know, uh, annual uh, kind of reminder that, hey, you know what? We do all this work of planting seeds and working in the field and taking care of this and protecting and putting the fences up and all that and watering. But then there's one day when we actually get to bring in that harvest. And you could just imagine seeing stacks of, of wheat really high up in the barn or stacks of wheat out, out in the field. They're gathered at the threshing floor in ancient times. And that was a visual reminder of provision, of blessing. That was the payday. The provision for your family was in that stack of wheat. The, the, the crop that you would sell to others to buy things that you need, that was in that stack of wheat. And so harvest is, was a positive time, a time of rejoicing and, and celebrating. It is a woeful comparison, but I'll do it nonetheless. It's, it's basically how sometimes we feel on payday when that paycheck, when that automatic deposit hits your account. Times have changed. <laughs> you know, I, I wish your automatic deposit was a, was a stack high like that wheat, but no, I mean, you know, you get that sense of, hey, the labor has actually produced something positive. It, it obviously harvest was a time of joy, a time of happiness, a time of singing and celebrating, a time of dancing. Boy, because all that work had paid off. Harvest was also the time of separation when we think particularly of wheat and barley harvests in ancient times, you would have to take the, the wheat or the barley there to the threshing floor where you'd have to separate out the wheat or what's usable from the chaff, from what is not edible, what's not, what's not worthy to be kept, what was actually worthless. Harvest was the time of separating what was valuable from what was worthless. And when it comes to wheat and barley, in order to gather the harvest, you have to use a sickle. You know the sickle, that scary-looking thing on the pole with the sharp end on it, and you know the, the, the reaper would come, and it would you know, cut all the wheat or the barley, and then it would be gathered up. To gather the harvest, you have to use the sickle. Jesus uses the harvest as a way to describe the end of the age when he will return. In Matthew chapter 13, he actually gives a parable where he uses this exact image where he talks about how there's going to be this day of harvest where he will harvest the earth. And that day of harvest is is a time of rejoicing and joy. It's a time where we see the culmination of, of God's promises as they come to fruition for his people. There's a gathering and a celebration. But that time also is a time of separation. It's a time where what is valuable, what will be we kept with the Father for eternity. What is that is separated from what is worthless. Now, we talk about the end. We talk about this reaping of the earth. We talk about Jesus returning and judging the earth, right? And that feels like a long way off. It feels like, well, that's going to happen one day, someday. And we might ask the question, so what? Well, it's a good question. Because too often, we can't be bothered with thinking about what's going to happen at the end. We're too busy watching grocery prices go up. We're too busy dealing with problems at work and with the family. We're too busy waking up on a Sunday morning with the water not working at the parsonage. Random example. I'm just giving you there this morning. Life is happening, right? 
frankly, sometimes we can't be bothered because we're just too busy, even with good things. But here, in the Word of God, we find an important piece of revelation. And you've got to remember, in the first century, uh, the Apostle John, as he spreads this message, this revelation to the churches in Asia Minor, they were facing difficult circumstances culturally. They were facing a circumstance where it wasn't easy to be known as a Christian in the public eye. It was difficult. It caused a negative stigma to be attached to you. It could result in persecution, imprisonment, and in some rare cases, it even resulted in death. And so here, John passes on this, this vision because he says, you need to know this if you're going to follow Jesus today. You need to know what's coming. You need to know where we're headed. God reveals the harvest that's coming in the future to change our perspective right now. And so as we get into this passage, we're going to unpack this whole picture of the harvest. We're going to talk about what this passage means. But as we do so, don't lose sight of the fact that this is meant to affect you right now. It's meant to change your attitude towards your present circumstances, the situation that you're facing in your family right now, maybe the difficulty you're facing after the first few weeks of school. Maybe it's trouble at work or just general difficulties in the economy. Whatever it is you're facing, physical trials, financial trials, emotional trials, you need to know that thinking of the coming harvest will help you. It will help you prioritize what matters most. So let's get into these verses and see what's going on here with the reaping of the earth's harvest, okay? We're picking it up in verse 14. Now, really, all of chapters 12 to 14 have have been this uh, series of visions where you kind of get a summary of the story of creation. You get a summary of the story of the struggle that we have against the dragon and his beasts. This will all culminate, of course, right at the end, right before Jesus returns. And here at the end of chapter 14, we have this preview of the coming of Christ and the reaping of of the harvest of the earth. So in verse 14, John continues. He says, Then I looked, and there was a white cloud, and one like the Son of Man was seated on the cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. If you pause there just at verse 14, John has already seen and heard these angels uh, proclaiming that the day of judgment has come and proclaiming the eternal gospel. There's been a warning call go out to all the earth. And in light of that warning call, now it's going down. And what's going down? Well, John sees a cloud and seated on the cloud is one like a son of man. That's a quotation from Daniel chapter 7 verse 13, which is a reference to the Messiah. The Messiah who actually is reigning and judging, right? There is known as the Son of Man, and he's coming on the cloud. So it's exactly out of Daniel 7, 13. Here he's seated on the cloud. He has the golden crown on his head because he is the king over all kings. So he comes with authority, and he comes with a sharp sickle in his hand to actually do the work of harvesting the earth, right? So th- there's the picture in verse 14. One like the, the one like the Son of Man, Jesus the Messiah, is coming as the reigning king to harvest the earth. The time has come because it's been announced uh, uh, from heaven. Watch verse 15. So another angel came out of the temple. This is the temple in heaven. Crying out in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap! For the time to reap has come, since the harvest of the earth is ripe. And this is basically an angel bringing a message from the father to the son saying, it's go time. Let's go. And so the angel announces, coming from the temple, from God's dwelling, comes to the son of of man and says, it's go time. Harvest the earth. The time is now. This day is coming. There will be a day 
when the Father says to the Son, it's time. There will be a day when the earth will be harvested. And so in verse 16, so the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. You see, Jesus will reap his harvest. This is not the only place in the Bible where we read about this. Of course, we'll read about it again here at the end of Revelation. But we also find it in that parable I referenced in Matthew chapter 13, explained by Jesus himself in verses 39 to 43. We find it described in Matthew 25, where Jesus talks about he will come in judgment. On the day of judgment, there'll be the separation of the sheep and the goats, and he'll use his angels to to judge the earth. The, The sheep will stay with the son, and they will be joined to the father, and the goats will be judged and removed. The separating of the wheat from the chaff and the harvest image, it all goes together here. And in this particular instance, in verses 14 to 16, the imagery, I think, is primarily positive. That Jesus will harvest the earth. And as I told you before, the harvest is generally a positive image. So this will be a time of gathering of his own. This will be a time of rejoicing. The uh, subtle emphasis in verses 14 to 16 may be on Jesus gathering his own, the believers. He will gather them together unto himself. Jesus will reap his harvest. Now, he's uniquely qualified to do this because of the reference to Daniel 7.13. He is the second person of the Trinity, and so he has divine authority. That's what's emphasized in Daniel 7. The Son of Man, the Messiah, is not just a man who has a high position. It's actually a, a divine person, that it's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who has that authority. And so here, he, he comes on the cloud, bearing the authority of, of God because he is God. He, he comes wearing the golden crown because he is king overall. You can think of Philippians 2 where the apostle Paul reminds us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He comes as the judge of the world with the sickle where he will render the final verdict. This is a positive image, especially Especially when you think about churches hearing this message who had lost brothers or sisters to persecution. Churches who were under the the oppression of local magistrates who wanted to flex their muscles, and so they had imprisoned Christians to make a point. Churches where doors had been kicked in and scriptures confiscated, lest this dangerous religious group grow anymore. Churches that were made fun of on Twitter incessantly. Churches where they were, if you're known as a Bible believer, you're thought of as a backwards hillbilly. That you're uneducated, that you're uninformed, and that you're a negative impact on society. Churches where being known as a Christian in a school or in a community can lead to being made fun of. Being treated as a joke. You see, the fact is, churches in those situations need to know that Jesus will reap the earth. And one day, we will be gathered to our Lord. We'll be with Him. That will be a day of joy and vindication, just like those days of harvest were in ancient times. That will be a day of celebration for God's people. It will be a day where no longer will will, uh, wicked and evil men be ruling over the earth and ruining cultures. No, instead, Jesus, the king over all kings, will come, and he's not going anywhere. He's coming to stay. That's it. 
And so his people will be gathered to himself. This is the day when those martyrs from Revelation 6 who are crying out, Lord, how long until these wrongs are made right? This is the day when they will be made right. And so this harvest is actually a positive image here. And the message to the churches in Asia Minor, and I think the message to us today, it's so simple. This day is coming. The Son of Man will harvest the earth. And so the question is, as believers in Jesus, will we live for the harvest? Because our calling is, Live for the harvest. Live in light of the fact that this day is coming. So here's the temptation, right? The temptation is to get distracted. The temptation is to forget that this day is coming, to maybe lose sight of it, and to get sucked into what we know in Revelation 12 to 14 is worship of the beast, right? This, this satanic program of loving money more than anything else, or loving uh, peer approval more than anything else, or loving, you know, uh, advancement in our career, or political power, or whatever it is. But really, John, in passing the vision along, he's saying, you know what, you got to evaluate your life now in light of the harvest. Because hindsight, what was hindsight again? Hindsight's always what? Somebody tell me. Yeah, it's 2020. Hindsight's 2020. And so here, John's like, you don't want to get to the day of harvest and look back at the decisions you make and go, oh man, I blew it. I I wish I had valued Jesus more. Specifically, there's a couple things that will look different from the perspective of the harvest. For example, compromise will look different from the perspective of the harvest. Every day you're tempted to compromise. In ancient times, it would have been to worship the Greco-Roman gods with their neighbors. Today, worship the gods of our, of our land, our day, right? Worship the money, worship the entertainment, worship whatever. And you might think, you know, I'm not like a full-blown Satan worshiper or anything, but I'm just going to compromise here and compromise a little bit there. I'm just going to cut this corner. I, I know that's not what God calls me to. I know that God calls me to certain things in certain ways and how I should live. But, you know, I'm, I'm better than my neighbor's. I'm better than so-and-so, but from the harvest, compromise is going to look like a waste of time and a failure. Or persecution. The the temptation today is to avoid persecution at all costs. Be a secret Christian. That way you don't take any heat. But as we learned last week, there's really no option for that. There's no way to actually be a believer and keep it secret. Because if you're a believer today, as I know I put it so affectionately, week in, week out, you're a weirdo. You're, just, you're going you're gonna to stand out. You have to stand out. But persecution, which looks like loss today, will look like gain at the harvest. You'll realize it was worth paying that price. It's okay that I was made fun of a little bit. It's okay that my boss didn't give me that promotion, or it's okay that 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 professor thought I was crazy because the king has come. You know know what else looks different from the harvest? Self-worship. I got to tell you, in our culture, this is our primary form of idolatry. It is worship of self. I am my own God. I determine what is true. I determine what is right or wrong. I determine lots of things in our culture. I get to decide who I am and and what's important. But the fact is, on the day of harvest, it's going to be very clear that I am not God. And that self-worship is going to look like a big waste of time. We find a similar, I think, heartbeat, a similar passion 
In the book of Ephesians, although it's in a very different context, but the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 says this. He says, pay careful attention then to how you live or how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Paul's like, you just got to be careful because that day is going to sneak up on you. And the days are evil, meaning you can easily get distracted by chasing false gods. That's what we can, it's so easy to get caught up in it. And so Paul says, just be wise, be careful about what you're spending your time on. And here John says, I saw the vision. He's coming with the sickle in hand. Like the earth will be harvested. So pay attention to how you live. Live for the harvest. Can I just encourage you here? Uh, small, small decisions make all the difference. Small decisions make all the difference. You know, sometimes we think like it, there's a big, you know, epic, you know, mountaintop religious awakening moment. And obviously when we come to faith, that is huge. And it is a miracle of the Spirit of God that we would ever put our faith in Jesus. That is, that's outstanding. That's obviously got to happen. But, but really what God calls us to on a daily basis is not to string together a bunch of spiritual highs. He calls us to the small ball, to daily decision-making to honor Christ in how we go about the little things in our lives. That's where these battles are are lost and won. But on your daily decision-making, if you can remember when you're taking out the trash, when you're stuck in traffic, when you're studying for that test, when you have to do your chores, right? Whatever you're doing, if you can remember the harvest is coming, I need to live in light of the fact that Jesus is king, right? If you can remember that, you'll be on the right path. Will I seek the Lord today? Will I read his word today? Will I pray to him today? Will I gather with his saints this week? Will I serve him today? Will I invest in his kingdom today? It's those little questions every day that will make the difference. Now, while harvest is a positive image, the rest of the image here in chapter 14 is what my friend Spurgeon calls the heavy task. Because while the harvest is glorious and it is good news for believers in Jesus as we are gathered to him and we will celebrate and rejoice on that day, the time of harvest is also very, very bad news for those who have not worshipped the lamb and instead are worshipping the beast. Watch verse 17. Then another angel, who also had a sharp sickle, came out of the temple in heaven. Yet another angel who had authority over fire came from the altar. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the vineyard of the earth because its grapes have ripened. So the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth and he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. Then the press was trampled outside the city and blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. This is a sobering image depicting God's judgment of unbelievers at the end. This is it. And again, we'll, we'll, we'll read about it again at the end of Revelation. But here in chapter 14, we get a little preview of it because the issue is urgent. 
And, and the image is taken from Joel chapter 3. In the Old Testament book of Joel chapter 3, we have a prophecy looking ahead to God's judgment of the world and this idea of, of a harvest of grapes and those grapes being trampled. That imagery, it pictures, it's a metaphor here for God's wrath against sinners. And one day he will pour out that wrath. One day those grapes will be gathered and they will be stomped on in the winepress of God's wrath, according to verse 19. The image, of course, in the vision, it represents the, the intensity of God's judgment against the wicked. This idea that the, uh, the blood flowing out of this wine press will be up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. Now, that image of the blood being up to the chest of the horses, that's actually used in other apocalyptic literature, non-biblical apocalyptic literature, to depict like the worst day. Like, this is it. Like, it doesn't get worse than this. So he's not saying literally there's going to be blood up to the horses for 180 miles. He's saying this is the day of judgment. God's wine, God's wine press of wrath will be fully operational, that the earth will be harvested, that believers will be gathered unto the Lord, and those who are not believers, they will be judged. And you don't want your blood flowing on that day. That's where, that's where the image ends up. It's a grotesque image meant to drive home the point that God's judgment is not to be, it's not to be laughed at. It's not a joke. And it, it's not an antique theological concept from ages past. That's one of those ideas that I think is getting a lot of steam um, in our culture. Um, there was a, uh, a really unfortunate book written by a former evangelical pastor. It, it's called Love Wins. You may have heard of it. The pastor's name was Rob Bell. Uh, not a good book. It, but the idea of the book was, you know what, all this wrath stuff, it's not really going to be like that. At the end, everybody gets in. At the end, it's, it's, not, it's not a big deal. But what I fear about that movement is, while it is absolutely in the, in, the, in, the, in the vein of thinking that is characterized by our culture, it fits perfectly in our culture, it is exactly contrary to what we read in the Word of God. There is a warning that a day of judgment is coming. And I'm not saying you have to get a sandwich board and go walk around the streets of New York City shouting out to people that the end is coming, okay? But I am saying that we have to be people who not only believe this is true, but live in light of it. That we know that, that the wine press of God's wrath is a real thing. So what should you do? Well, live for the harvest. God will judge the wicked. And once again, I would just... Take a moment here to borrow from my friend Spurgeon. But the fact is, you read a passage like this, and there's, there's a message here for believers. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. We're going to unpack, why. so what? Okay, we're Christians, so what? We're followers of Jesus. How does this help us? Okay, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But it is very possible that there are people in this room listening to this message who are not followers of Jesus. And if you're here today, and you're not a follower of Jesus. Spurgeon said, this passage may awfully and terribly concern you. Because there's a warning. There's a warning that when Christ comes, the earth will be harvested. And his angels will do the harvesting. And as they separate humanity out and sort out humanity, they're going to sort out the believers, and the believers will go with the Lord, and that will be a glorious moment of, of joy and celebration. But they're going to take these unbelievers, and what remains for unbelievers? What remains is the wine press of God's wrath. It's not a, a fun image. It's not like, oh, well, it's no big deal. No, it is an eternally 
big deal. And I think Spurgeon was right to just take a moment and say, you know what, you just need to feel the weight of this. Because as gross as it is to think of 180 square miles of blood coming up to the horse's chests, it's even scarier when you think about it being your blood. Spurgeon was right that this passage is gifted to us to wake unbelievers up out of their slumber. And if you're here and you're thinking, one day I'll get to it, or I'm not really sure if God's real, or, you know, when I get older, I'll finally figure it out. There's an urgency here from the Apostle John to say, listen, the day of harvest is coming, and no one can guarantee you that you're going to make it home from church alive. So you need to be ready for this day right now. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, heed this warning. You do not want to be experiencing the winepress of God's wrath. You do not want to experience His judgment. We found out last week in the previous section here that that judgment is an eternal judgment. And so here God has kindly gifted us a warning. And His message is not simply to scare you. It is scary. But it's to say this, that outside of my mercy, you'll have to receive my wrath. And so there's this urgency to say, would you receive my mercy? Would you finally let go of whatever it is that you're worshiping? And would you bow your knees and would you worship me now? Would you confess your sin and would you trust in Jesus, the Son of Man, who died for your sins and rose from the dead? Would you look to another wine press? Did you know that where Jesus gathered with the disciples on the night of his betrayal in that garden. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? In that garden, there was an oil press and very likely a wine press. The fact is, it's, it's not a mistake. Because what does Jesus do in that garden? He willingly surrenders himself. He willingly chooses to start the chain of events that results in him experiencing this wrath. Because on the cross, as much as Jesus' physical suffering was horrible, what Jesus experienced out of love for sinners like you and like me was the outpouring of the wrath of God. It was that spiritual wrath that he experienced that was causing him to to weep tears of blood. And Jesus chose, he chose to experience that for you and for me. So that we wouldn't have to. So that on the day of harvest, we would be gathered unto him. Jesus surrendered to bear God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. That's why a passage like this can actually help you turn to Christ. So again, I I would pray that this does not awfully and terribly concern you, but there is a chance that it may. And if you know that it does, it doesn't have to be that way. God has made provision for you in Jesus. Now, that warning aside, if we think about the fact that God will harvest the earth and judge the lost, how should we as believers respond? Well, let me just give you two. I know there are a lot more. I just want to help you brainstorm two of these. But the first response that I think helps us here, and that I think John has in mind, even as he passes on this vision, is a response of worship. The prayers of the martyrs will be answered. 
all those, all those unreconciled wrongs will finally be dealt with. And really, it's not so much the petty wrongs on earth, although those will be dealt with, but the issue is more the deeper wrong of rebellion against the Creator. Like, that's the problem. And so ultimately, that wrong will be made right. It will be settled. There's not going to be any room. I know some of us are rule followers in this room, and some of us are the rebellious ones, okay? And I don't need you to raise your hands, but if I asked you to raise your hands, I know the rule followers would. Praise God, okay? So there you are. So, you know, I know so not all, all of us are rule followers, but the fact is, when there's rebellion against God in the universe, things aren't right. And so this is the day when that actually is finally eradicated. Like, no more rebellion. All the wickedness will be caught and dealt with. Like, it'll be done. And so there's an opportunity to praise God here for his righteousness. It is good that wrongs will be made right. It is good that that evil will be judged. And so the response, as we'll see when we get to Revelation 19, the response of heaven to the judgment of the earth is joy. It's singing. It's actually celebration. And it's not, it's not in any way a situation where we celebrate that unbelievers are experiencing the wrath of God, but we do celebrate the fact that God's righteousness is finally settled the problem on earth. And so we, we rejoice and we worship the Lord in light of that. It's, set, it's definitely a, so, a sober worship, but it is worship nonetheless. I think sometimes in our culture, because we're so allergic to the idea of God judging, right, um, we just lose sight of the fact that this is not just something that we should teach, but it's something that we should worship God for. We should praise Him for the fact that He is the judge. Second response, I think, for the church here is the urgency of the mission, okay? The urgency of the mission. So, church in in Asia Minor is taking heat for being believers, and maybe they were thinking, you know what? Let's just go incognito. Let's just try to stay out of the limelight. Let's not impact our community so much. And maybe they're thinking, let's just not evangelize because it's going to be hard. So let's just kind of hunker down. But really, there's an urgency here where John says, no, actually, yes, the earth will be judged. Okay, so it it will be harvested. And so we need to get the word out now so that those who would perish instead will be gathered unto the Father in joy. There's an urgency in the mission. Personally, I'm going to follow the Lamb because of the harvest. And secondly, I need to share this good news about what the Lamb has done to help people avoid the wrath of God. There's a warning, of course, to those who are still worshiping the beast. You know, urgency is tough because there's a lot of things that are, that are clamoring for our attention in our time. Um, you know, in... Okay, so full disclosure, um, I'm not huge on the online gaming scene, okay, uh, because I'm old, and that's just part of what goes with when you're at my age. <laughs> that's what comes with being my age. That was a joke. Anyway, uh, the, the online gaming is interesting, though, because as my offspring have experienced it, um, for these live games, there's this false sense of urgency that's created. <gasps> there's a new tournament, and it's starting in 12 hours and 37 minutes. So I have to make sure that everything's updated. I have to make sure that the controllers are charged. I have to make sure that the internet bandwidth is big enough. Like, all this stuff. Because I got to play the game, right? And there's an urgency, you know. And it's urgency for what? For a video game. It's not, impor- it's not important, right? It's not important. It's just a video game. It's a false sense of urgency. So we live in a world where, like, that's a thing. Where there's this false sense of urgency created for all kinds of, you know, for entertainment or whatever. And it's not just video games, right? False sense of urgency are all over the place. This is actually a real emergency, right? And I think sometimes we're desensitized and we've kind of lost sight of what actually really is important and what matters. Well, the judging of the earth, that's kind of a big one, right? With eternal consequences. 
So this is the one we got to be paying attention to. This is the one that we have to keep in the front of our minds so that we know we're living in light of the harvest of the earth, right? There's an urgency to the mission. This is urgent. And so it's urgent that I, that I personally, right, am aware of the growth of God's kingdom and I'm sharing this good news as God gives me opportunity. We say it all the time, but God will give you opportunities to share the gospel that he won't give to me or to somebody else in this room. So he's given those opportunities to you. So take those opportunities. But it's also an urgent mission in regards to our church. Corporately, we have to say missions is not like a footnote on our budget. Like this has to be an urgent component of what we're doing that we want to see the gospel spread in our community and across the ends of the earth. And plane tickets are expensive and living in foreign places can be expensive. That's okay. We give money for that, right? That's the whole point. So we set aside our finances. We take those trips. We take that vacation time to go and to invest in the advancement of the gospel because the harvest of the earth is coming. And so this matters. It's an urgent ministry. It's an urgent need that we have. We follow the Lamb, and we want to help others follow the Lamb. We want to spread this good news. I, it's just hard. It, um, another factor, I think, that complicates things is how you file your taxes. Okay? Just work with me on this. Uh, because in, when you file your taxes, you group all charitable giving together, right? And if you give $5 to PBS, that counts in the same category as money that you contribute to a gospel preaching ministry or to a missionary, okay? Those are not in the same category. Can I just be really clear? I understand for tax reasons why they are, but those are not in the same category. But in our culture, sometimes it's like, oh yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm involved in charitable things. I don't want to be involved in charitable things. I want to be involved in what advances the kingdom of God. And yes, I want to see mercy shown to people in need, but that's a means to a greater end because the harvest of the earth is coming. And so I don't want to give that money to PBS. I want to give that money to people who are going to see the gospel advance. That's where that money needs to go. That's where my energy and my focus needs to be. I, I, sometimes we just get, we can get distracted. We can water it down and it just, it's all the same thing. It is not all the same thing. And so there's an urgency here to the mission in light of the fact that the wine press of God's wrath will one day be open for business. Now, where does that hit you, Right? You can ask the question on two levels. Am I worshiping the Lord because of his righteous standard and his, and his future judgment of the world? Or am I avoiding that topic because of my culture? And secondly, am I treating this mission as urgent? Is it important to me? Now, the fact is that not everyone can give up their careers and vocationally go and serve the Lord in these ways. But some of us can. Some of us can. And maybe God might be nudging you this morning. You know what? Actually, I do have the opportunity to make some changes in my life that I could invest more thoroughly in the kingdom. Now, it doesn't work if we all give up our vocations. So many of us have to stay working our day jobs in order to advance God's kingdom in the long run, right? And so one way or another, the question is, do I view this as an urgent, important mission in the moment? Or am I content to treat it as something that's like, eh, it's just... It's a, one of the things that I do. It's a footnote of my faith. It's not really that urgent. The question John would ask in light of these visions is, will you live for the harvest? Are you living for the harvest now? Or am I compromising? Am I avoiding persecution? And have I bought into the cult of self-worship that fits so well with American culture today? I don't know how else we can be convinced of the urgency of this issue than by looking at this vision and taking it seriously. 
there will be joy for the church of Jesus as he harvests the earth. But there certainly will be mourning, there will be sadness, and there will be eternal pain for those who say, no thanks, I'm good without the Lamb. You know, as early as the 15th century, death has been pictured and personified as the Grim Reaper, okay? You familiar with the Grim Reaper? The Grim Reaper uh, is uh, uh, usually a He's wicked, so he's tall, right? And uh, he's, he's a tall, he's a tall guy. He's tall, and he, and he wears that black robe, you know, and he has that black hood on, right? And uh, what's that in his hand, though? Do you remember what he has in his hand? Sickle. The sickle. Yeah, the sickle. And so the grim reaper, in the title, the reaper, right? He comes to reap the earth of the living and, and take them, uh, take them and, and cause them to die, right? So that's been, Hollywood's done a number with the Grim Reaper, and he's probably kept you up at night a time or two. Skeleton wandering around in a black robe with a sickle. It is pretty scary. It's just not accurate. It's just not accurate. Because according to Revelation 14, it's the Son of Man who holds the sickle. It's his angels who will do the work of reaping. And so, really, it's not that we would fear death or fear the harvest of the earth in the sense of we would fear God's judgment. No, the idea is that, no, I belong to the one who holds the sickle. So I don't fear the day of of reaping. That, That will be a day of joy for me. In fact, I know that I can be confident living my life not fearing death, because when that day comes, whether he returns tomorrow and it's the, it's the day of reaping, or whether I die before he does, one way or another, the one who holds the sickle is the one who died for me. So I don't have to fear this message. Instead, I can live for the harvest. The question we have to ask this morning is, will we? So would you pray with me, and we'll ask God to help us do that. Lord, we pause this morning as we just consider this, this vision. We, we confess, Lord, that it's not something that we like to think about in our culture. The day of judgment. The day of great harvest to the earth. But Lord, we, we pray that as we reflect on this, that you would help us, help us to live for the harvest. Lord, help us to see the positive imagery here that when you gather your own, it is a time of joy and celebration. It is the payoff of all the hard work, that the persecution, that the the martyrs, the loss, all of that, Lord, is temporary, and there will one day be that day of gathering unto you where we will be with you because of the provision that you have made for us. Lord, we pray that we would heed the warning. I, I do pray, Lord, for those who hear this message, who have not trusted in you. I pray that they would see that the wine press of your wrath is very real and it is not to be scoffed at. Lord, I pray that they would see your, your great love for them. As Lord Jesus, you willingly endured this wrath to rescue sinners. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that work of causing repentance in the hearts of those who have not believed, so that you would be glorified and so that the harvest would be bigger. Lord, we pray that you would help us to worship you in light of this truth and to see the urgency of the mission 
Lord, help us, if we're struggling with compromise, if we're struggling with avoiding persecution, if we're struggling by not valuing the work of of the spreading of the gospel, Lord, help us to see how we need to make changes to live for the harvest right now. And Lord, I pray that that if there are those that you are calling to give up their work and and full-time become missionaries and serve you in hard places, Lord, we pray that you would give them a passion to do that this morning, that they would see that you're calling them to that, that they would pursue it, and that, Lord, you would provide the finances and the practical things that need to happen to make that work. We praise you and thank you for those that we already support worldwide who are living in very hard places, doing hard things for your glory, to see this harvest get larger. Lord, we know that in your sovereignty you have... You have kindly seen to call us to participate in this process of growing this harvest. So we pray that you would help us to live for the harvest. Help us not to get drugged with entertainment, Lord. Help us not to be worshiping ourselves and thinking that we are gods, but rather, Lord, to submit to you, to worship you, and to live in light of this coming harvest. We can only do that by the help of your Spirit, and so we ask for that help now. And we pray it in Jesus' name, the Son of Man who holds the sickle. Amen.